Well, we're going to turn now again to, well, we're already there, I think, Isaiah chapter 30. And uh, the title of the sermon tonight is, is this, Precious Pastoral Promises. Precious Pastoral Promises. And we'll now hear the second half of this chapter. And see if you can take a note as you're hearing the Word of God, what precious pastoral promises jump out for you. Let's hear the word of God. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling and you said, No, we will flee upon horses. Therefore you shall flee away, and we will ride upon swift steads. Therefore your pursuers shall be swift, a thousand shall flee at the threat of one, at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And gives you the bread. Oh, it's no wrong. Sorry, wrong thing. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself any more. But your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, "This is the way. Walk in it." When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, Be gone! And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread the produce of the ground which will be rich and plenteous. In that day your livestock will graze in large pastures, and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter, when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury, and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath 
is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck and to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept and gladness of heart as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in a furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones, the Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres, battling with brandished arm, he will fight with them for a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready, its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. The title of the sermon tonight is Precious Pastoral Promises. And I think as we heard the reading tonight, you, will have, you would have already picked up a number of them there. And isn't it wonderful? Because Isaiah's name means the Lord is salvation. And he lives up to his name because even in this section of Isaiah, known as the book of judgment, yes, he preaches judgment, but at the same time, there's always hope. Can't we praise God for that? There's good news, but there's also bad news. And we see the separation here between the elect of God and those who rebel. And this sermon this evening is going to focus on these precious pastoral promises. It should edify all of us as hearers. And Isaiah chapter 30 actually is a standout chapter. Last week we looked at chapter 29, which was also a standout chapter the fact is there are many standout chapters in the book of isaiah which is no surprise is it to us that it was a favorite of the lord jesus christ he loved to cite from it paul was very familiar with the book of isaiah and it's very important for us in the church but how does it begin it doesn't begin with good news it begins with bad news the lord speaking in verse one ah stubborn children is how god addresses says declares the lord it's the lord addressing the old testament church and we can think well that's okay it's the old testament but we're the new testament church and that's not for us well what a lie that would be as if god has changed between the old testament and the new testament and he hasn't it's the same god as we heard this morning from 2 Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. And so this is a profitable chapter for us. But the rebellion of the people of God is more the theme of the next sermon from Isaiah 31. We're going to deal tonight with these pastoral promises. We've got four headings. Let's see if you, you got them. Maybe you did, maybe not. But heading number one is in quietness and in trust from verse 15 in quietness and in trust that's the first promise the second heading is from isaiah 30 18 to 21 is this the lord waits to be gracious to you 
the Lord waits to be gracious to you. The third heading, when the towers fall. You think, well, is that a precious promise? It is, if you're putting your hope in God. It is a precious promise, and we'll see why later. And fourthly, the, from 3029, the rock of Israel. The rock of Israel. So I hope we're going to be really refreshed, strengthened pastorally, every single one of us this evening from God's holy word. And the first heading is in quietness and in trust in verse 15. So what does it say? For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. And despite this judgment, there's hope here for the elect of God, for the remnant, for those who have ears to hear. Do you have ears to hear tonight? Well, listen to this one. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Oh, let's just... Let that sink in for a moment. Let me just read it one more time. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Sadly, it says, but you were unwilling. Don't we hear echoes there of the ministry of Jesus? Oh, that he was so willing to gather in people, and yet they wouldn't. They wouldn't. They kept on rebelling against Jesus Christ. And why? If, if Jesus, you know, it's not going to happen, but if Jesus came to Sheffield for a few weeks, just say, you know, stand aside, boys, I'll, I'll preach here and show you how it would be done. Well, other than by the working of the Holy Spirit, they wouldn't believe in Jesus. Because here we see Isaiah's preaching, and he says, but you were unwilling, but for the elect of God, those who have ears... The Spirit of God will draw them. What does it say? Because they were running to Egypt. This picture of the world, running to their horses. And every time there was a problem, uh, Egypt, you'll solve the problem for us. And the Lord says, no, in returning and rest you shall be saved. You're not to be saved by running to Egypt, but saved by putting your trust in who? The Lord God. In who? The Holy One of Israel. See that name keeps on coming through the whole time. The Holy One of Israel. Would you agree that we really need a recovery of the sense of the holiness of God to be preached and loved by the people of God? But it says, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. Returning, that's turning your back on Egypt and, and turning to the Lord instead. How worldliness is so powerful. It would be foolish if we think, that, oh, it doesn't touch me, I'm okay, I'm a Christian, it doesn't bother me. Well, the Bible says that Satan deceives the whole world. And we see this world system is powerful. Who's got the crowds tonight? It's not the church. Not that, we're, not that we feel we're competing with Meadow Hall. We don't feel that at all. We're not competing with anybody. Who's got the crowds tonight? I don't know what the football fixtures are, but there'll be somewhere that's probably got 80,000 people jumping up and down. So don't think the world is not powerful. But the message here is, is in returning and rest, you shall be saved. Turning away from the world. Turning away from the world. What about the whole computer gaming industry today? Don't tell me the world's not powerful. It's one of the biggest industries on the planet. They must have developed ways to get people hooked into it and keep hooked into it. Or spend hours upon hours doing such things. So let's walk soberly. Because 
Okay, Egypt in those days, they didn't, they didn't have laptops, but they had the same gimmicks to draw people in and draw people away from the Lord. But look at this next verse. Not only in returning and rest you shall be saved, but then the Lord speaks a word of comfort to the elect of God. And he says, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. In quietness and in trust. What, what's the Lord saying to the people there? Well, every time there was a problem, it's e easy just to be tempted. Let's run to Egypt. The, the Assyrians are attacking us. Let's go to Egypt and say, come on, Egypt, give us some horses. Come, let's have an alliance with you, and so forth. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. That's not the way of the people of God. The way of the people of God is to trust in the Lord. And when it says here, in quietness and in trust, what does it mean? Quietness is the opposite of a kind of a restless, frenetic anxiety. You see, every time the latest nation would attack, it could be a kind of frenetic activity. We need to run to Egypt. And the Lord says, no, in quietness and in trust you shall be saved. How is your quietness and trust thermometer level tonight? Is there anybody here who's bowed down with anxiety? You feel oppressed with anxiety. Well, the people of God did then. They were, they were bound with anxiety, and that anxiety led them in the wrong direction. It led them to chase after Egypt. Instead, what does the Lord say? It is so opposite to our thinking, but God said all the way through his covenants, he said, he said, I will protect and I will guide you. So in other words, what the Lord has said all the way through is some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord. What the Lord was saying in that day, look, put your, put your RAF jets in the, in, the, in the hangar. We don't need them. Those tanks, just leave them. We don't need them. We're going to trust the Lord. No, 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 come on. Don't be so stupid, Andrew. You can't, don't you realize we're going to need those tanks? Well, that's the attitude of our nation today, isn't it? We think we need to just protect ourselves with, with military weapons. Well, it's true. If, you, if you've abandoned God, you're going to need something in the flesh to protect yourself. But what will happen on the final day of judgment? And so the people of God here are being told to do something that seems foolishness in quietness and in trust. Don't yield to anxiety and to panic or to be frenetic. In quietness and trust shall be your strength, shall be your military strength. Well, hang on a minute. How can that be? We're not, don't we need to do something ourselves? The Lord says, no. Stop it. Trust me. So what a beautiful promise for us. Of course, we can individualize this for us, and rightly so. And But... Before we just move on to our second heading, let's just consider how we have the gospel all the way through the book of Isaiah. In chapter 1, we love Isaiah, but chapter 1 doesn't start off with good news. It starts with bad news. And we need the bad news as well. Because we t if we turn our back on the Lord, we can claim to be a Christian, but if we're not following the Lord, what's going to lead to chapter 29? We heard last week that there was a religious people, but they honored God with their lips, but their heart was far from him. But listen to this in chapter 1. We really go down into the valley of vision and Isaiah preaching the sinfulness of the people. And then listen to this, how the Lord again comes again with compassion. What does the Lord say? 
Just, just forget them. Just, just leave them to it. I've had enough. I'm done with these people. Well, sometimes that does happen. But, but there's always gospel promises, though, for us individually. And in Isaiah 1, it says this. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Doesn't stop there. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We need to ask ourselves is anybody tonight refusing and rebelling against the Lord? Because it says if you are willing and obedient, willing to come, not to Egypt, but to come and submit yourself to the Lord. And we're only a matter of, who knows, a few weeks away, and we'll walk up the path to Hilltop Chapel, and it'll be white as snow. It'll have snowed, and it's always a reminder of this verse here, isn't it? That though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. It's a great illustration. But it's not meant to be just an illustration. It's a call of the gospel. What a wonderful thing. God's saying, come now. If you might be a small boy listening to this, and God is speaking to you tonight to come now to Jesus Christ. Might be a small girl tonight. And God is speaking to you. What a beautiful word that is from heaven. Come. Come. Not stay away. Come. There's no excuses. We need to come. So let's move on to our second heading because we're looking at precious pastoral promises and chapter 30 and verse 18, what's the next one? There are others, by the way, in this chapter, but we can't deal with all of them, but there's enough for us to deal with. These are, these are worthwhile, by the way, writing down some of them on a little bit of paper and just slamming them on your fridge door, that every time you go for your milk, for your cornflakes this week, you remember this verse that it says, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. In quietness and in trust... Because we need to have our minds renewed. And quietness and trust doesn't come quickly as it didn't for the people of God. But our second heading is the Lord, in verse 18, waits to be gracious to you. What a wonderful God we have here. Preaching is really to get us, uh, to really point in towards the Lord in, in an act of worship. We're here to worship God. The Lord, you can personalize this and say, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. This is the God who we worship. What a wonderful God that we have. Now, I remember many years ago, I was at a presbytery conference, must have been at least 10 years ago, and uh, there was one of our ministers called Peter Naylor who was doing a paper, and it was a time when New Covenant theology, maybe you may have come across that, it was bigger 10 years ago than it really is now but one of the papers was this from Peter Naylor is grace found in the Old Testament because this new covenant theology was saying you know the, the New Testament is where the good news is and that's where we need to be living but that's not true we've just seen tonight there's gospel promises all over the Bible so Peter Naylor uh, did this paper on is grace found in the Old Testament I remember he looked at one Old Testament promise with the word grace in. He closed his Bible and said, that's the end of the paper. But boy, that's a, 
short conference, this one. But actually, he, he actually opened his Bible again and they went through. Grace is found all the way through the Old Testament. It's not a, a new thing. When we come to uh, Paul and, and the Gospels, we know that all the greetings begin with grace be unto you and peace. Notice that. Grace is first, then peace. Grace is first, then peace. And here we see in verse 18, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Now, one of the benedictions that we often use is Numbers chapter 6. It's one of the most well-known benedictions in the history of the church. And it, it was this high priestly benediction, or this priestly benediction. What, what is it? In Hebrew, it's very interesting. It's the one the Lord bless you and, and keep you, that one, which... Um, well, let me just say it first in English. I'm not going to read it out in Hebrew, but the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And you can see the, the progression there. There's a, a progression in this redemptive revelation. And when that benediction is given, we're to receive that blessing as from heaven. And for us from heaven but through Jesus Christ. In Hebrew, it begins with it's interesting, it begins with three lines, then sorry, three words, then five words and then seven words. But we're not so much concerned with the beauty there that is found of scripture which is everywhere, but this it begins with the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord promises to keep us. Not wonderful. But then it says the Lord makes his face to shine upon you, not just an individual, but the people of God, and be gracious to you. And then lastly, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, or shalom. So what a wonderful progression we have. And in verse 18, if we turn back to the text, it says, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice, Blessed are all those who wait for him. And before we move on to our third heading, let's note this for a moment. As we think about Christ, it says, Therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. And that points us to the exaltation that would come through Jesus Christ. And we have a high priest tonight. He's invisible. We can't see him. You can only hear his voice through the word of God and through the preaching of the word of God. We can't see him. But though we've never seen him, we love him. And he is seated in heaven and he has been exalted. And he is the one and the one alone who can give mercy to us, to give us wonderful mercy. You say, well, I've never quite called out to the Lord yet for mercy. Well, why not do that tonight? Why not even do it when we sing one of our last songs and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. It says, blessed are all those who wait for him. And they were, this is 700 years before Jesus came. And what a blessing that was. But blessed are those who wait for him. For Abraham, it says, through faith and patience, we inherit the promises. Imagine that. So we're in a different season right now. We're on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus. 
Um, but we're now to be waiting for the second coming of Christ. Are you waiting eagerly for the second coming of Christ? Now, God's not going to reveal to us, you know, all these dispensational charts, and, you know, you've got war in Israel, and then this will happen, that will happen. And, and I, I've known people when there was a, there was a, the, the six-day war in Israel, I heard of this guy who stood up and said, look, we're right here, right now. And uh, the thing is, the six-day war finished by the following Sunday. And this friend of mine who is now holds Reformed theology, he, he says, the preacher never got up and said I was completely wrong last week. I need a new chart. But the fact is, we do not know the day or the hour when Jesus will come. Blessed are all those who wait for him. So we'll have no idea exactly when he will come, but we're called to wait eagerly for the second coming of Jesus. Well, let's move on to our third heading in, 20, in uh, chapter 30, verse 25. It's a very short little heading. It's this, when the towers fall. 30, verse 25. And on every lofty mountain, in every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter. We'll move on quickly from that one. When the towers fall. No, we won't move on quickly. Because we need the truth of God. That God's judgment will eventually lead to a great slaughter. You say, well, I thought, Pastor, you were preaching that God is a God of love. God is a God of love. But that's not all he is. And when Jesus Christ comes back, he comes back once and once only, it will be a day of great slaughter. All of his enemies will be defeated. And it says here, the third heading is when the towers will fall. When the towers will fall. And as we look around the world today, you go to London, you know, they've got, last time I was down there, they've got this new walkie-talkie building. Have you seen the walkie-talkie building? And you've got the shard at the other side of the river. And, uh, you know, and they, they're putting up these magnificent skyscrapers and the, the skyline lo looks naturally fantastic. But next time you go there, just remember this. There'll come a day when the towers will fall. You know, we think about all these big stadiums. They have sports stadiums. There's Man United's Old Trafford. That's one of the most magnificent. But there'll come a day when the towers will fall. Those floodlights will never be on ever again when Jesus comes back. What about you go to other places around the world, go to Tokyo and you go to uh, Dubai and they seem to be putting up buildings left, right and center. Just remember this, there'll come a day when the towers will fall. And so therefore this is so important because if we're ever tempted to put our trust in Egypt, just remember one day the towers will fall. Everything we've worked for in this world, it will become non-existent, physically speaking when the towers shall fall. You tell that to a non-Christian friend. Just, you know, let me show you this verse. There'll come a day when the towers shall fall, but it's important for us as Christians to wean us off any attraction to Egypt, to be reminded that the day of judgment will come when the lights will go out, the towers will fall, just like Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24. What did he say? He said, no one can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
And what's this world after? They're after money. That's, that's, that's really what they're, they're really lusting for. The more money I have, the more cruises I have, the more holidays I have, the more this I have, the more new cars I have, and whatever else it may be. But the day will come when the towers will fall. And may we as Christians be found serving God. There's coming a day when these towers will fall and the greatest fear that you and I should also have is the fear of the day of judgment. Because to die in our sins would be the worst thing, wouldn't it? We've no idea who's listening on live stream. We don't know. We don't know who this sermon might be for tonight. But listen to this before we move on to our last and final heading about the second coming of Jesus. Yes, it will be wonderful. Because we've got in this verse here, verse 25, it says this, it says, uh, sorry, the next verse, 26, Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. When Jesus comes back, the brilliance of the light of Christ will be so powerful. And in Revelation it says this, Chapter 6, 16, and 17. What a fearful day that will be. And may we be motivated evermore to pray for our unsaved friends, our unsaved family, unsaved people, because it says when Jesus comes back, there'll be people wanting rocks to hide them from the face of the wrath of the Lamb. And the light will be sevenfold. And of course, However, the brilliance of the face of Jesus is, imagine the brilliance of the glory in heaven where there's no darkness for all eternity. Well, our last heading tonight is verse 29, which is the rock of Israel. And we see there as we draw to a close in verse 29, you shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept. And remember, we began with a warning to not go to Egypt. But there's good news here. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept and gladness of heart as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, the rock of Israel. The Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard. Isn't that encouraging for us? Not only in the church, but also in evangelism that the Lord is the one who will cause his voice to be heard. It's a glorious promise. When Jesus comes back, the door will be shut. There'll be no more repentance. That's why it's such a false doctrine, this whole idea of purgatory, this Roman Catholic doctrine. Have you heard of that one? They say, well, when you die, you can go into purgatory and you can still find your way out. It's just anathema. But the Lord, it says here, that will cause his voice to be heard. And in Matthew 22, Jesus gives this wonderful parable of this gospel invitation, which we'll close with tonight. And listen to the graciousness of our Savior. He's preaching his heart out in Jerusalem and Judea, and yet at times people are just totally turning their back on Jesus, wanting to just fight against him left, right, and center, and even eventually lead him to be uh, crucified on the cross. 
But in Matthew 22, Jesus says, the gospel is like the invitation of a wedding banquet. We all like a wedding, don't we? And these invitations go out, but they don't go out on paper. Uh, Jesus sends people out to invite people. And so that invitation's going out tonight to invite people to come to this wedding feast. It's all paid for. But yet many don't come. Some do, but many don't. And then we find Jesus teaches this wedding hall. And can you imagine in, in heaven the, the vastness of the wedding hall? All these different nations together, clothed in garments that have been given by the king. But notice him, there's a warning as well. In Matthew 22, in the midst of this gospel call, Jesus teaches this. That in this great wedding feast, it says, But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Binding hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. And as we draw to a close tonight, there are many precious gospel promises, but there are many precious gospel warnings as well. Notice, the only person that recognized this man had no wedding garment on was not himself. Even other people around him didn't notice that he was not born again. He wasn't a believer. And yet when the king came in, he said, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And here is a warning to us. Somebody gave their testimony to me in the last few weeks. And they said to me, for a number of years, they assumed that they were a Christian. They did good works and they thought that good people go to heaven and that they would be one of them. They even railed at some Christian friend and said, as far as this born-again business, it's a load of nonsense. And yet they believed they were a Christian. And by the grace of God, the Lord opened up their eyes and the scales fell off and they were born again. But they look back now and thinking, they would have been that man who would have been without a wedding garment, thinking that their good works would have saved them. And nothing our good works cannot save us. Only Jesus and him alone can save us. I was listening, or not listening, reading a, a wonderful book recently. Queen Catherine Parr, I may have mentioned her recently. She was Henry VIII's last uh, wife who survived him. You know, he would behead them, he would divorce them. And uh, one would die, and then he'd behead another one and divorce another one. But she survived King Henry VIII, and she was born again. But she had to keep it under wraps a bit, uh, and then after Henry died, she let people know, and she wrote a book called The Lamentation of a Sinner. It's an outstanding book. One of the very early books written by a woman in her own name, Queen Catherine Parr. And she says for many years she was proud that she was a Christian, but she wasn't a Christian. She was proud. She was actually a Roman Catholic. She was proud of all of her good works, and she would hear sermons and think, that's not for me. That's not for me. That sermon's not for me. I'm a Christian. But she had no sense of, of lamenting for her own sinfulness. And then God had mercy upon her and saved her. 
And she turned her back on this religion of works, which was Henry VIII's religion, Roman Catholicism. She turned her back on it and realized she was a wretched sinner. Do you see yourself tonight as a wretched sinner? Because that's the fruit of being born again. You recognize, oh, wretched man that I am. Not somebody else. What about you? Oh, wretched man that I am. But we don't stop there. But thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. But this is a whole book that a queen wrote and was published about her saying, oh, wretched woman queen that I am. And you can imagine how powerful that book was in its own day and still is. Well, as we close this evening, as we've been looking at Precious Gospel Promises, I think that was the title. Let me just double check. Precious Pastoral Promises. We always need to be reminded or regularly about heaven and hell. John Calvin said this about heaven. Whilst we travel through the world, we ought always to erect our minds and senses toward heaven. Let me just say it one more time. Whilst we travel through the world, we ought always to erect our minds and senses toward heaven. Are you doing that? Are you erecting your mind towards heaven? Because remember, the day will come when the towers will fall. Maybe you might, you might become a millionaire or a billionaire. You might have five towers. Who knows? You might have your own islands. You might, you might own half the Caribbean. But remember, the day will come when the towers will fall because John Calvin also said this about hell. And we need both. We need to be taught about both. John Calvin said about hell, no one will ever seriously retort to the mercy of God but he who having been touched with the threatening of God shall dread that judgment. Do you dread hell tonight? I hope we don't just sit here and say, you know, we can have a strong assurance of salvation, which is wonderful. But at the same time, do you dread the whole prospect of hell? Recognizing that you deserve that. And there's only one reason that you wouldn't go there. It would be the graciousness and mercy of Christ given to you personally. What a gospel we have. I feel like jumping up and down and shouting, Hallelujah, praise God, I'm saved. How about you? There's nothing wrong with that, is there? You go to Hillsborough next week, they'll lose 5-0 and they'll still be jumping up and down and saying it's wonderful. People get excited about a lot of things in this world and there's nothing wrong. We've been thrilled with the gospel and what we've been delivered from. John Calvin on heaven said this, If we would perceive the worthlessness of this fading life, we must be deeply affected by the view of the heavenly life. One last thing. John Calvin on heaven. If we would perceive the worthlessness of this fading life, we must be deeply affected by the view of the heavenly life. And as we close this evening before we're going to sing, Queen Catherine Parr, I think she died before she was 40. And she's in heaven. And people didn't live as long in those days, which actually was quite helpful. Generally, our average life today is probably over 80. And so we're always putting off heaven and thinking, well, it's not going to happen for another 30 years, 40 years for some of you. 
50 years maybe, on average. But who knows? Let's be found waiting for Jesus Christ.